0: This episode was recorded with an audience of Ambition Empower members. Empower is a continuous learning program that rethinks how you learn new topics within the field of design. Instead of attending a conference, you attend Ambition Empower and take part in one or several tracks taught every week by industry design leaders. For more information, visit uxpodcast.com forward slash empower.
1: UX Podcast Episode 307.
0: I'm Pat Axpom
2: and I'm James Roy Lawson
0: and this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening to us all over the world from Spain to Ethiopia.
2: As a researcher, strategist and UX designer, Alice Schmidt has worked both for agencies and in the public sector. Her greatest interest lies in the wicked problems inherent in enterprise design and the mysterious ways of large systems.
0: These are all areas she has delved into as product strategist for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. She also has a background as an award-winning reporter and producer for NPR and others, covering arts, business, technology and urban development.
2: When technology moves so fast that regulation can't keep up, people's lives and livelihoods are put in jeopardy. Designers and engineers often react by creating ad hoc policies that might lead to even bigger problems. Alexandra's
0: new book, Deliberate Intervention, aims to show both designers and policymakers how to work together proactively to create tools and rules that truly serve the public interest.
1: And I should say that my views do not represent the views of the Federal Reserve.
2: When technology moves so fast that regulation can't keep up, people's lives and livelihoods are put in jeopardy. Designers and engineers often react by creating ad hoc policies that might lead to even bigger problems. Alexandra's new book, Deliberate Intervention, aims to show uh, both designers and policymakers how to work together proactively to create tools and rules that truly serve the public interest.
0: So, Alex, they say honesty is the best policy. But what then is policy? (laughs) Is it possible for us to pin down what we mean when we use the word policy within the digital design and tech space?
1: Um, well, I think policy in the digital design and tech space and policy in society means similar things, Um, governmental policy, you could say, um, which is simply shaping things to produce a world or a result that you are happy with. That's really all it is. Um, You know, you can break it down further into details, but but that's That's what it comes down to. And in digital policy, that's what they're trying to do. And the same goes for government policy.
0: That's such a great way of not defining it, but really expressing the goal of it. I love that.
1: (laughs) Thank you.
2: So how, how did, um, how did your background in, well, like radio and, um, um, you had a really interesting, um, um, master's, um, degree that you'd done as well with, um, what was that? There was, um, um, I've forgotten the name exactly. You know the name better than me. Oh yeah.
1: Uh, I did a master's in cultural journalism. reporting
2: and yes. criticism. There we go.
1: Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's been quite a journey um, to get to the point that I'm at right now. But I think that there's a lot. So I, I had this background as a journalist um, and I think there's a lot of um, overlaps between journalism and UX. I actually wrote an article about that a little while back. Um, you know, I still interview people a lot. Right. You know, I interviewed people as a journalist. I interview people as a UX person. Um, a lot of my work in UX is selling ideas. And that is something that's very similar to what I did as a journalist. Um, you know, wrapping things up with a bow and presenting it, that's very similar. UX and journalism. So there's being curious, major overlap. So there's a lot of areas of overlap. And in some ways, it was a very natural transition that I made. Yeah. But the criticism piece, you know, um, I think that comes through in this book that I wrote. I know we haven't like touched on that, or maybe we did a little bit. But um, the criticism piece is really just kind of ah, taking a little bit of an unconventional view on things and pushing back on the prevailing narrative. Um, And I think that's kind of what I did in the book a little bit
2: because you you yourself in in the beginning of the book you you out yourself as a oh um now what's the what's the phrase you use there it's technophobe like, technophobe yeah. Um, yeah which which is nice that you're gonna put that straight out there at the very beginning of the book well mm-hmm. is is that is that i guess that's connected to the 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 criticism angle that you're talking about
1: absolutely absolutely um you know i i think that it's great that a lot of people who work in the tech world are sort of cheerleaders and interested and, and excited about it. Um, and I just don't come from that angle, right? I just come from a more doubtful, um, skeptical place, I suppose. And I think we need both. We need all of that. We need, you know, the excited cheerleaders and we need the people who kind of take a step back. And they're, they're both important points of view.
0: So one narrative that a lot of companies within the tech industry have, obviously, is that they are going to save the world. And what you start off saying is design can't save the world. You're not saying it won't. You're not even saying it can't save the world. Talk to us a bit about that.
1: Yes, another one of my kind of um, unconventional (laughs) uh, pushback on the prevailing narrative stances. But, you know, I I think that that perspective really comes from understanding the points of view of designers, where I think a lot of folks in the design world have a bit of um, a savior complex, um, where, you know, they take a lot of the problems on their shoulders. We take a lot of problems on our shoulders. We're told we are the advocates for the user and we are going to help people and we are going to solve their problems. And we can't do that. And we sh- it shouldn't only be our job. Um, and we actually have systems and institutions in society that it is their job. And so to your point of, you know, companies saying they're going to save the world, well... You know, how does the public sector interact with those um, with those private companies that have, in some cases, laudable goals? Um, but we, we all have to to shape shape things together. Right. Public sector and private sector design and policy. That's what the book is about.
2: I'm going to kind of stick up for the um, for, for UX designers for a, for a moment and say I, c- I can imagine that the, we've got listeners out there that are saying, you know, but, but I I feel I can make a difference as a you know, as an individual designer um what do you i mean is that something you don't want to crush that spirit i guess
1: no not at all and i actually in the book there's an entire chapter on you know the book is about how do harms emerge from technologies and then how do we react to to that um and there's an entire chapter of the book on like internal interventions in other words what can companies do inside to um, react to harms that emerge from technologies. And then there's another chapter, which is, you know, when policy comes into play, external facing policy. And so, no, absolutely. I think that design has a major role to play, but up to a point, you know? So I, I don't, you can't do everything, but there are things you can do. There's really important things you can do. And I can get into some of those, but yes, not trying to crush anybody's spirit. And I think that, um, you know, also, I think it's empowering probably maybe for design to understand how, you know, it interplays with these wider systems of policy. Um, and that's kind of what I was trying to think about when I wrote the book. Uh, maybe it even gives people new frames for thinking about how they can help and new ideas.
2: Yeah, because it's, uh, yeah, you you as an individual, you are part of that bigger system. And yeah, you'd be working, I guess you're working within your organization, which in itself has been, it has to follow policy regulations that come from outside the organization.
1: Yes, that's, that's true. That's right.
0: And speaking to, to what the book covers, I mean, harm because when people are actually intending to do good and save the world and, and, and having all the want, want to have all this impact and are being really careful designers and realize in the end that even though they take all this care, harm happens, something goes wrong. Uh, and, how how do you even reconcile with that? How do you acknowledge it as a designer? And how do you go about addressing it?
1: I think maybe the first thing to realize is that it's quite natural. Um, and, you know, I have a whole chapter about technologies throughout history and how harms emerged from them. Um, and, you know, every system creates a sort of unintended consequence. That's just the way of the world. And there's no way to reduce all of the um, side effects of what we design and our technologies. And so understanding that that is something that's going to happen. And then from that frame of reference coming into, well, how can I make it um, as least harmful as possible when those harms start to emerge um, and react to that? um, That is sort of the question that's at the core of the book.
0: Something I really love that you talk about is how how pain points and harm are different things. Because sometimes people will say when we talk about ethics, well, that's my job. I work with pain points. I can do customer journeys, I find the pain points, and I resolve them, so I eliminate harm. Whereas you really get into how sure pain points can be addressable by design interventions, but perhaps harm cannot.
1: Yes. Thank you for saying that maybe better than I did, I think. You know, that was like a very good crystallization of those ideas. Um, Yeah, so as designers, we look, you know, at the detailed journey of a user, try to identify the pain points, the points of friction. Um, But harms aren't usually something that users identify in the course of research. Um, They, for two reasons. One is, they accrue to uh, society on a broader level, not necessarily to individuals. And they also become apparent later on in time. Um, they're not something that a user is going to say, hmm, that's harmful to me. Come on, think about it. You know, like uh, my, my, my example of, uh, that I use a couple times in the book, one of them is the YouTube algorithm, right? So, you know, it's feeding me more and more sensational videos. And I like those. I perceive that as exciting and something that literally brings me delight as a user. Um, but again the harms accrue later on in time and they accrue at a level of broader level of society. So you're not going to identify harms in the course of standard design research. That's just not how our work works.
2: And I think I mean I guess as well that even if you do um stumble across some of the harms then um, I think we've, we've all been part of that um, situation where it's it's dismissed as a as a as an edge case, um, or as you know, it's something that's not affecting the bulk, so we don't need to worry about it.
1: I'd love to hear more about that. Actually, maybe I should have interviewed you for the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, it, I,
2: mean it, I think it does come up when you, you not, well, I say harm. I mean, well, you do come across things that maybe you, you don't want to fully design something because you know it's, it's it can be feel like an effort to to cater for a particular situation or a particular group of people, um, and for them it might be quite harmful. it like might. Um, exclude them or um, you know a lot of the the time we've we've had this issue around accessibility for example that you um, you maybe have kicked back you know push back from an organization to bother making something accessible because they don't see the the people with accessibility needs as part of their core audience or primary audience or want to prioritize dealing with it. Um,
1: Yeah yeah and that's actually one of the um, you know when you talked before about we don't want to crush the spirit of design. There are things design can do. I think one of the big things that design can do is um, in the it, it, for proactive mitigation of harm is target designs to those most likely to be harmed. Right. And this is something I talk about in the book. Um, so, you know, what what happens is when you target designs most like to those most likely to be harmed is that benefits accrue to a much wider group of people. I'm sure you know this. Um, or you've heard these ideas before. One of the examples that we have, I, I don't know if this is the case in Stockholm or in sorry, Sweden or other parts of the world, but we have things called curb cuts that, um, you know, they're on some sidewalks and not others and they let you kind of roll. Um, and sidewalks were not always designed with curb cuts. You know, they had to re- retrofit um, the sidewalks of cities in order to accommodate for, you um, originally wheelchairs, right? So people who couldn't walk. And what ended up happening is that a lot of other people benefited, people who were um, pushing babies in strollers. And you know, there were you know, perhaps people who just were on crutches or just had a pain in their knee or whatever it is. You know? So the, the point is that you know, even though it might seem like um, a very small number of people who are being harmed by something, there's a much wider group that benefits from addressing those harms.
2: Yeah. So, so the the gathering, so the 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 summation of of knowledge or observations of that greater benefit for society, that's not going to come from the individual organization. That's going to have to come from a a, a yes. bigger yes. part of the system. That's
1: right. And in fact, you know, here we have um, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was a landmark piece of reg- of regulation policy that. Um, caused our cities and institutions to have, you know, handicapped stalls and bathrooms and tons of, you know, had a million design implications for our built environment. Um, and it didn't come from the original. Exactly. It didn't come from the private companies that were building, you know, our infrastructure. It had to be something that would, came down from on high um, and was sort of dictated to society. You have, you must do this. Right. So, you know, I think the point that you're making um which I think is my point in the book, is that you, know, you can't necessarily expect um, pri- individual designers within a capitalist ecosystem to address all of this. It's just probably not going to happen um, in all cases, as hard as you might try. And our society writ large has to come in and, and address these things. Mm.
0: This makes me think about what I started now calling the dance of policy creation, I don't even think you call it a dance, but when I was reading that chapter, it was more like, so it's, it's both proactive and reactive. So, so something happens, technology is introduced into society, society reacts, and then it reshapes the technology itself. And then the policies have to change. So there's always something going on. So just with the accessibility example, like having a ramp for wheelchairs, yes, I have a ramp for wheelchairs. Okay, so it turns out it's too steep, so people can't actually get up. So we have to change the policy. how how does that happen in a space where everything is moving so
1: fast? Yeah, you mean like in digital tech? Yeah. Um, That is a great question. Um, I think that's something that we're struggling with right now. And, you know, there's this idea of like the pacing problem, you know, that I mentioned in the book, which is basically that um, technology moves really fast and policy moves really slow. So they're operating at different paces. And how do we bring those things closer together? Um, and you know, there's a, there's a chapter in the book about, um, bringing policy and design closer together. And I think that there's a lot of interesting movement in that space. Um, so for example, you know, you could be a designer, um, who gets interested in policy and how your work interacts with it. Um, there's, there's somebody who I interviewed who works in the healthcare, who works on healthcare UX and he's, super involved and aware of policy and has opinions on it and actually tries to uh, impact it. So um, I think that, you know, there is a place for designers to to kind of reach up if you want to think of it that way and um, connect with the policy sphere. And there's lots of other examples of, of these spheres coming closer together. But I think that that's, you know, the, the, the nascent idea of how maybe we start to address this problem.
2: So, yeah, so I think in the, in the book you, um, um, yeah, you, you, you mention, like Peirce brought up as well, the reactive and, well, the policy is reactive um, rather than proactive. And you suggest that we need to be more thoughtful and collaborative. Um, now, yeah, so I'm getting the understanding now that when you say collaborative, you mean with the policymakers themselves. yeah
1: in some cases yes right so um convening convening policymakers and everybody who's part of the work of shaping technology is one of the things that can happen and does happen in some spaces and in other spaces it really doesn't you know we have um you know an agency will issue an intent of I mean this is in the U.S. right this book is does not cover the policy making of the entire world so it is U.S. centric I'm sorry but um I had to focus in one place um but so, I do like the fact that
2: you point that out at the beginning of the book. Yeah, that was, that was nice to see that you actually put it out there that, yep, I know this is UX centric, but there'd be useful stuff for you in the rest of the world as well. It's, it's nice to see.
1: Exactly. There was no way to kind of, at least in the time that I had to cover all of the policy making uh, apparatuses in the world. But, you know, there are some patterns that are going to st- hold true no matter what um, what country you're in. But you know, we have that agencies issue like an intent of rulemaking. We're 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 going to uh we intend to make a rule, you know, and then companies uh read this, you know, essay online and they write back a letter and they sort of go back and forth, and then it's like, you know, a thing gets created. So that's a very, you know, not modern way of collaborating, right? You know, you can think we we have uh, workshops. We have methods of talking. We have to discuss things. You know, there's a whole piece in the book where I talk about facilitation and um, collaborative policymaking. That's something that doesn't happen as much right now. And I think there could be more of that. Um, it is complicated, right, because there's so many different parties that you need to bring to the table. I'm sure you've had, you know, um, the challenge of scheduling a workshop where you need lots of different people um, and you need them all there or else you're not going to get, you know, the right the right solution. So, um, I think that that's one of the challenges of doing this well is bringing everybody to the table, um, and having those types of conversations, but that's one of the things that I think is an opportunity space. So
2: where's, where's the, I guess, where's the line then between collaboration and, um, uh, lobbying?
1: Well, I guess when I think of lobbying, I think of, you know, coming in and saying, I want, you know, I think, first of all, lobbyist is like somebody who's paid by a company to get a certain policy outcome. And when I think of designers collaborating with policymakers, I don't think of the designers, maybe I'm putting the superhero. The the
2: reason why, the reason why this question popped into my head, I was just thinking about, you know, going back to the individual designer and kind of that, that power as an individual designer, and the enthusiasm. And then if you're in an organization, Mm. then, you know, bubbling that up, you're going to reach organizational level. And then that made me think of well, yeah, especially in America, then once you get to organizational levels, there's an awful lot of lobbying goes on where the organization pushes for a certain policy. So I just, I just kind of started to wonder about where that, you know, multi-layered um, you know, approach or system, where, 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 the, where, do we, is there anything we can look out for to see when we're you know, moving across into lobbying and we aren't maybe pushing policy, our ideal policy anymore?
1: No, you're right. I mean, I think that that's a really, really interesting perspective. And uh, I guess what I would say is that, you know, we're dealing with like giant, in some cases, institutions and organizations where, you know, people doing lobbying are like in a completely different space from, you know, somebody who's, you know, saying I'm working with, you know, whoever's writing this policy and I'm working with the UX of fill in the blank and, you you know it's like completely you might not even be aware that there's lobbying happening because you're in a completely different part of the organization um you know sometimes the left hand doesn't speak to the right um and um you know that's not a great thing but i i my point is that these things don't necessarily need to be impacted by each other they can happen in separate separate spheres
0: i feel like you're opening a door for people who are struggling within their own companies, perhaps, to make a difference and raise their hand and say, this isn't working for me. And I see all these dangers uh, where they can actually put that energy into perhaps, I'll, I'll call it activism, to actually in- influence policy uh, and go into that in that direction instead and perhaps have a more uh, sustainable impact.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm going for here. I mean, I just think, you know, what we've been doing hasn't exactly been working and I'm trying to find other approaches. Um, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of folks are, are talking about right now are sort of like ethical toolkits and using ethics and design. I think that's, you know, a sort of trend or wave that we're seeing right now. And I think it's laudable and important. But again, I come back to this idea of that has limits. You're still in a capitalist Paradigm and you're not going to be able to escape that um, even with all the ethics that you bring to the table and so this is exactly what I'm trying to do. Thank you for putting it that way. You know what are other things that you can do to try to be the most positive force within technology that you can be? and this is why I wanted to look at this policy lens
0: so So what should I do as a designer? tomorrow to support the idea of creating policy to safeguard people who are impacted by, by my industry?
1: Well, so, I mean, this is something that I struggled with on this book because my, um, editor and publisher, you know, they really wanted it to be a to do, you know, how, how to, how to, right. And I was always pushing back and I was saying, this book is not a how to, this book is not a how to, this book is how to think. And I always thought, that how to think is sort of the first step in this extremely dense space and the how to think is the how to. So, you know, I'm going to push back a little bit on the how, how, what do I do next question? Um, I think immersing oneself in these ideas and starting to ponder them more deeply is the first step. At the end of the book, I do have a list of things that you can try. You know, one of them is like facilitation, getting to know policy, getting curious about it, understanding how it's being shaped in your space that's an awesome first step. But again, you know, the book is not a how to, it's a how to think. Um, and I'm trying to stay away from too many prescriptive solutions.
0: Changing mindsets rather than providing yes. the tools toolkit.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I'm not ready mm-hmm. to be like, check, you have a checklist now, you're done. You know, that's <laughs> not what I'm going for here. So
2: you are now a certified policymaker.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're, that's not what this is about.
0: I think that was a perfect note to end on.
1: Thank you. That was really fun.
0: Thank you so much, Alex.
1: So, the,
2: the thing that just keeps coming back to me, or, or I suppose nagging me when it comes to, to policy and listening back to the, the interview with Alex, is this, this whole thing where we, um, you know, we have the boundless internet, this global thing that we, we created trying to be harnessed by bounded policy, by by policies that are that are, that are framed within the context of a of a country. Um Alex herself we gave a praise uh, I gave a praise in the interview about how her book opens up being by being very forthright and open about the fact that she has limited the scope to the USA in, when it comes to particular policy details, which is excellent that she's she says that up front. But at the same time, it's kind of, I suppose it's, it's, it reveals the whole problematic nature of this area that you have to deal in a legal framework and that legal framework uh, of policy is within a country or a region in some aspects, if you're looking at the, the EU, I guess, or, or in America is, I guess it's, it's, it's state level and the federal level. Um But but you've, at the end of the day, you've got machines that are connected to each other globally.
0: Right. So as a, com- a as a country, you can regulate within your own borders, but the the corporations and the internet companies they work globally. So they actually have to comply with all the laws of all the countries.
2: Yeah, ultimately, that's what we're talking about. When you yeah. if you're offering a global service, then yeah, you've got to you've got to, you have got to you know comply to everything. Um,
0: Right. And so when we hear people say, like the billionaires say that, well, the cost of doing business is being sued and fined for breaking the law, we sort of, that, that feels awful. But at the same time, thinking about how many laws and policies we actually have to know and understand, it's quite hard to comply with them all.
2: It is. And I guess the, so what you end up with as a, as a natural state, I guess, for, for organizations is, is it... A little bit of one of, or fear or ignorance or, or both. That you know, when you've when you've met with um, a policy sphere, and say, okay, can we uh, comply to this um, policy sphere in another region? And uh, you know, if the answer is kind of, well, I don't think so, then you're naturally going to close the door to it. And in internet terms, that means not making your products or service available in a certain territory.
0: Right. So you. Essentially, need, you put, put up a geogra- ge- geographical yeah. wall for your service. Yeah,
2: that, that becomes the, the legal mm-hmm. requirement, effectively, if you're not prepared to meet mm-hmm. um, policy in the other region. And we've seen this, I mean, since, since GDPR mm-hmm. came uh, on board here in Europe, that um, I mean, especially medical websites, American medical websites, most of those, they um, I think Healthline is a, is a prime example there. When we Google for things um, and a Healthline result comes up in the search, results you click on it and you're met by a, a cookie banner Obviously it basically asks to give you your consent for loads and loads of cookies fair enough that's them trying to comply with various um oh policy and law um and if you say no no thank you then you basically get told you're not allowed to view the content yeah and there are some, and there are exactly. some sites even where it doesn't even yeah. give the choice. You just can't view the content because you're in Europe.
0: Yeah, I'm surprised by the number of news sites actually that have this thing saying that you're you're visiting from the EU, so you're not allowed to view our content.
2: I, and I'm just presuming this is where <laughs> policy. Mm. Someone has has, mm. has explored policy in other regions, and they've gone the legal team, or whatever. Gone. Look, you know, we're not meeting. We're not. We're not living up to this. So you need to do something. Mm. And then someone's gone. Mm whoa, that's really complicated and expensive for us to do, and maybe even clashes completely with our business model. Uh, We'll just shut the door quietly and leave. Yeah. That, though, that goes against, at least I suppose for some of us, the hope and dream of the internet was something global and, and unifying.
0: Exactly. Exactly. That that's sort of the point, and I, I mean that is that's that's why Web three is growing, and the, the whole the whole idea of decentralization, and there, I mean, of course, it's it's all in conflict with each other. It's it's in conflict with the idea of having localized laws, really.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I mean, of course it is because <laughs> it's global. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and then so we're back to the whole. I guess one well, of the main points of the of the of Alex's book mm. and the work that. Um, mm. I mean, policy goes slow and and yeah. technology goes fast and and people can get harmed. And um, what can you do to, to stop people from getting harmed? Yeah.
0: For me, there's, there's also the power imbalance of these huge companies mm-hmm. having more money than some of the countries they're active in, which means how could you possibly have any power over a company that's so much, much richer than your even your own country.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I think we, we, an example there would be like, we, we take Iceland, for example. I mean, it's what, 300,000 people. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it, I think it's perfect I mean, example. The GDP is, is nowhere near um, <laughs> yeah. many mm-hmm. of these large organizations that are, mm-hmm. are, are heading up um, both the policy debate and the policy problem, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so all they can do, Iceland, I guess, is just tag along. Uh, yeah. You know, ultimately, I mean, maybe they can try and influence. I mean, maybe that's the question. You know, how uh, how do you, in that kind of situation, um, exert an impact and 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 try mm. and kind of shape things? Because you are on the back foot as a small as a small nation. Exactly.
0: I mean, it, it it does come down to activism, really. I mean, that's your your power to protest, to make people aware.
2: Yeah, I and mean, we were. I mean I brought up in the interview the the that distinction of where where does um where does collaboration and 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 trying to to work together with those creating policy dealing with policy um when does that end and and lobbying start? Um you know, mm. example would be if you're working for, for like Google and as part of your job at Google you are meeting with policymakers, uh, policy, you know, people who are working within the policy world. Um and giving them your advice, mm. who's checking to make sure your advice is um, you know, genuine, neutral advice rather than what Google wants you to say as part of your role when meeting those policymakers?
0: I mean, which you would have to assume the latter, I guess. But And then <laughs> it, that makes me think of the policymakers then, of course, applying for jobs within these companies. So, so how, how does that lead to any sort of trust mm. at all? I think you was it Nick Clegg that you yeah, mentioned so so yeah so in, you went to facebook yeah, the UK,
2: yeah. Um, nick clegg was part of the government uh, david cameron's government um, mm. um a little while ago now um and after finishing up in government um when they lost the subsequent election he then signed up to be part of facebook's um mm. oh, yeah he was working for P- facebook in this particular area of um, policy um and yeah so you you wonder kind of like you know <laughs> How does that work? I mean, can you, oh, there, there are so many ways it could be, um, you could manipulate those situations and end up being, creating something that's not genuine.
0: So it does come down to power and whose voice matters and who gets heard and who gets, and who understands what is that's going a, on. I mean, think, that's a huge aspect of it. Who understands? Excellent
2: point. I mean, in the in the mm-hmm. digital world, we've seen time and time again that politicians and policymakers really don't understand what they're Dealing with and what they're talking about, mm. and the 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 speed at which policy moves uh, means that the time they've even started to maybe understand it, we've moved on. Yeah. So so you end up something getting um, you know, more regulated or policies being set for something which actually isn't really relevant anymore, and we're kind of like three steps beyond that already.
0: So that makes it even harder for people, even with activism, to make help help make people aware of the issues, because I think you need. Uh, people to understand the larger majority of people to understand something for them to be able to push lawmakers and policymakers to making a change mm. uh,
2: the, the the last chapter of alex's book uh, conclusion is the i mean we mentioned it a bit in the in the interview the the to-do list the the, the concrete advice of what you can you can do um and, and a lot of it is of course around being more um, aware of 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 and having more conversations around when you could be causing harm and um and staying on top mm. of of both design and and policy um and building bridges um you know making sure um you try and move things upstream um it's collaborate facilitate and collaborate and and that made me start thinking about maybe we need maybe we need to have more education for policymakers, i mean we we know we need to not just you know, collaborate with them but actually mm. actually design do design you know uX for policymakers or whatever or technology for for policymakers yeah. really kind of you know lift their understanding of, of not necessarily the details just the space um and and the messy world that we're in
0: because it's global it's a good point i mean I think some policymakers actually do a good job of that and actually mm. do make certain that they do study up on whatever they're they're deciding on. But of course, there's, yeah, there's a huge gap there. And,
2: and sometimes politics... And, and the gap part, never stops. Yeah, sometimes politics yeah. um, forces mm. policy to move mm. at a different speed to what the policy makers would mm. like.
0: Mm.
2: Exactly. Now, we might not be ready yet, but yet a, a p- mm. particular political situation means that you have to be ready. This needs to go in now because we've got a window of doing it now. Other people demand it. Other people exactly. demand That's it. That's the
0: thing, isn't it? There's the, the the window is always there. The window where where you have power, uh, which puts so many constraints on the whole idea of policymaking.
2: Mm. And we still haven't solved the international aspect. <laughs> still, to end on a
0: positive note, I mean, for me, since I, I'm a person who's been re- very engaged and truly uh, working with. Digital ethics for a while now. Uh, her points about uh, helping educating people, as you're saying, uh, making people more aware, engaging in activism towards policy making, is something that is. I feel like yes, that's a really good next step or a good complement to to the work I'm doing now.
2: Yeah, and I think I think we can be more you know, those those times when we kind of you know notice something and maybe push back a bit and say, look, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. Then. I'd like us to be more vocal about those moments we do it. Yes. Because that uh, communication will raise awareness and normalize some of the good behavior in, in some of these um, areas, which backs up some of Alex's points that we can, you know, we, we, can, we can be ahead of the curve. We can avoid things by happening. The more we talk about some of the things that we didn't do, we, um, we make it more likely, I guess, that other um, organizations won't do it either exactly
0: good one i'm now looking at recommend listening it's always you who puts these together so i'm, <laughs> a, I'm always curious myself so what has james recommended this time uh, and i'm seeing uh is it episode 92 yeah. wow that's a lot ago. <laughs> Manan- managing chaos with lisa welchman that's that, our, one.
2: that was our first chat with lisa Yeah. Um, When around the time she released her book about um, digital governance, Uh, so here I've I've pulled in an episode which links in with governance because policy and governance—they're they're they're not the same, um, but they're—I guess they're bedfellows.
0: Oh yeah, definitely.
2: Um, So that seemed really relevant. Listening, Mm. Um, it's always Mm. relevant to listen to Lisa. It is. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.
0: No, James, I'm like the fabric version of King Midas.
2: You're like the fabric version of King Midas? Everything
0: I touch becomes felt. Oh.